Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. Those are verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 89, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, May the 30th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. That's an important little piece of that psalm. I've been spending a lot of time recently with uh, Michael Heiser's work um, and and understanding a little bit, but not a lot, frankly, uh, of this whole divine counsel idea. And it's an important thing. It's an important thing, and I'll be you'll be hearing more about it as um, as we go forward in this. But today, what we've got is we have uh, we're continuing with looking at Ezekiel's prophecy. Today, we're in chapter four, verses one to seventeen, which is an incredibly odd um, chapter to say the least. Also, in the gospel, we're in Luke nine fifty one to sixty two, and then in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter six, verses one to twelve. So today what we're going to get is is that, that Ezekiel's life, like uh, many of the prophets, are told to do things, to, to uh, visually demonstrate uh, what, what God's saying. So it's not just words. Sometimes it's an acted-out parable. It's an acted-out prophecy, however you want to look at it. But, and that's exactly what we have here in Ezekiel 4. He says, You, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave it on it a city even Jerusalem. And so he's making a little relief map of Jerusalem on this brick and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. So what he's, what he's showing is, is that, that there, there will be armies that come against Jerusalem. So the brick is Jerusalem, and then all around it he's building essentially a little model uh, of what's going to happen. Set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So, so what he's to do is, is to, to uh, essentially to look on the siege of the city of Jerusalem um, without compassion. That's what it would mean to set the take the iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city. In other words, he's not going to act against this siege to protect the people. There's, it's going to happen. Period. End of sentence. There's no way that that they're that it's not going to happen. The Lord has turned His face against that very thing. So then he says, lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I lie on it, being your left side, you shall bear their punishment. You know, and so this is Jesus essentially bearing the punishment of uh, our sins. But but here he, he's being told, do this as a sign to the people. For the number of days you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So he's going to lie on his left side for 390 days to bear the punishment of Israel. And then when you've completed these, you'll lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. Well, thank God for that, right? I mean, <laughs> that it's not going to be another year plus that he's going to bear that. And when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time. But, oh, I'm sorry. 
40 days I assign, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And so this entire time, he's going to lie there, and he's going to be looking at the siege of Jerusalem and, and recognizing that it's punishment for sin that this is happening. Behold, I'll place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you've completed the days of your siege. So uh, about a year and a quarter, he's going to lie there <clears throat> taking the punishment of the people. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them in a single vessel and make your bread, for, bread from them. So he's bringing all these things together that aren't supposed to be mixed, but they're going to be brought together and they're going to be made into uh, his bread. And during the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food you shall eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. That's eight ounces of food a day that he's going to eat for over a year. From day to day you shall eat it, and water you shall drink by measure. The sixth part of a hen, about a pint and a half of water every day. That's all he's going to get is eight ounces of this bread, which is poor man's bread, essentially, because it's it's made with all these other things. It's an admixture of all of it because there's not enough of any one thing to provide. So there's, there's a famine, and there's going to be a drought as well. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. That's the fuel. He's going to burn human dung is what God initially says. And then the Lord said, thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I shall drive them. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up until now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast nor has tainted meat come into my my mouth. That's the cooking over the dung is the part that he's objecting to here because it's human dung, which would make everything in it unclean. Then he said to me, see, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. So God's having mercy on him. It's the the way the people will eat it is to make it over human dung because there won't be any cattle. Everything is going to go away. They're going to lose everything. And what he's saying here is, is that I'll, I'll give you the mercy because you have been obedient and observant. And so I'll give you the mercy of not having to do that uh, as you bear this punishment. He, he allows him to cook over cow's dung. Then he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. So there'll be a famine in the land. They'll eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they'll drink water by measure and in dismay. So, in other words, they're, they're just going to be completely abashed. There's going to be po- there's going to be poverty beyond anything you can even imagine, and it looks like the days of Elijah, right? I mean, it's that kind of judgment against the people of Israel, because they, and when I say people of Israel, I mean the Northern Kingdom, because that's where Elijah prophesied. So, this 390 days now, the 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 uh, Northern Kingdom is gone by the time Elijah or Ezekiel comes along, and yet he's still bearing the punishment for them because they're still God's people because he's in an everlasting covenant with them. So they may not be visible on the earth because they've been um, exiled and gone into this diaspora and and ceased to exist, what we call the lost tribes. Uh, However, they're not lost to God. He knows exactly who they are. And so Ezekiel here is to bear their punishment, but it's going to be as in the days of Elijah. I'll do this, that they lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. And and what's the goal of this? I mean, God's not just punishing his people. He is punishing his people, but it's that they might return to him. That's always the point of all of this. It's discipline for his children. 
and he's announcing it in advance. And so they have an opportunity here to repent. But he's, what he's saying is they're not going to. And I'm going to set my face against my city because of their sin and because of their failure to repent. And we know from uh, the earlier chapter of Ezekiel, from the end of last week, what we know is, is that, that even while they were in exile, God said they're not even repenting now. That, that they've not been in this sitting in this situation long enough to, to actually see that it's their fault and repent of their sins and return to me. <clears throat> so in the gospel, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is determined that no matter what, he is going to Jerusalem, and he knows how this is going to end. So he set his face to go to Jerusalem in the same way that Ezekiel is intended to set his face against Jerusalem. Here, Jesus is going up, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him, but the people didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem, because they would have said, no, you're, you're, this is false worship, and so since you're going to Jerusalem, they hated Jerusalem, Jerusalem hated, him, hated them, so since you're going there, no, we're not going to provide hospitality for you. It's not a place. There's no place for Jesus to be. And, and here, here again, we go with there's, there's no room at the inn. But here, it's hostile. There's a hostility towards him simply because he's going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Well, what is that image? Obviously, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. And certainly, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah in Jewish eyes relates very uh, heavily towards their lack of hospitality. They, they refused to provide any hospitality for these men who came. And instead of, uh, instead of hospitality, they gave hostility towards them. And, you know, the, the, the Midrash on uh, Lot's wife, the one who's turned to a pillar of salt as she leaves and looks back at Sodom, um, it is based in salt, actually. Just quickly, I'll tell you that. So here we are talking about um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you want us to do to them as you, as you did to Sodom and Gomorrah, um, to the Samaritan village, because of their lack of hospitality, uh, and in fact their hostility, which is the same thing, uh, as you see in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, what the, what the Midrash will say is, is that, that Lot's wife, was since she was, didn't know Yahweh, she was not a Yahweh worshiper, she would have been a, a person of Sodom, that what she did was is that, that she went to the neighbors because she needed salt and asked them for salt, uh, but complained about her husband's hospitality towards these strangers. And therefore, that's why she was turned into a pillar of salt, is because that was her sin is that she was providing hospitality, but she didn't want to provide hospitality. And in fact, she used it as a way of speaking badly about her husband. So that just a little side note there. But this, this obviously is what James and John are referring to. Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, the Son of Man didn't come to judge. He came in order to save and so we're not going to judge those people. Their sin is no worse than, than what's getting ready to happen. You want to see inhospitality? You're getting ready to see it. And you're getting ready to see it a whole lot worse than what you just saw there. But, but it's interesting to me that John and James uh, believe absolutely, without any question, they have the power to do it. They just need the permission to call down fire from heaven. It's pretty amazing that they would have thought that they had the power to do that. But they did realize, good for them, that they needed permission 
to do that. But it, it's interesting that they have that, and, and that's not going to be our responsibility. Jesus told us whenever we weren't welcomed in a town, shake off the dust of our feet as a witness against them and go on. He didn't say bring down judgment against them. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So what he's saying is you better count the cost. You need to understand something. This, this is not a gravy train that you're, that you're signing up for. If you tell me you're going to follow me anywhere I go, you need to understand that there's a cost to that, that, that it's not going to go well. We don't preach that very often, do we? We don't prepare people for the reality of following Jesus, that it's not easy, and it's not a road to prosperity. <clears throat> to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So, so what he's saying is, is that nothing should prevent you from coming. And it's the same thing you'll see with uh, Elijah and Elisha. When Elijah goes back and anoints Elisha, Elisha said, hey, let me go talk to mom and dad first and say goodbye to them. And, and Elijah says, no, not going to do that. What am I to you? And so what Elijah does, Elisha, is he's out plowing the field. He, he cuts up the, um, the plowing, uh, the plow, and, and then offers a sacrifice of the oxen on that in order to say, I'm done. I'm going forward. I'm going forward with the Lord. And here, that's exactly what happens is this one says, let me go back and do this. And Jesus says, no, 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 you can't do that. You don't have that option. I didn't offer you that option. He didn't offer it to any of the disciples. They all left everything and followed him. Again, we don't make that cost plain. We don't tell people, you've got to leave everything else behind. You're intended to change everything. You're intended to change everything about where you were headed and what was most important to you. Everything else now has to fit around that if it has a place at all. It needs to fit around your commitment to Jesus. And then another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first, let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, it's allusion to Elijah and Elisha. And, and Jesus is saying, you know, you see something that you want, but first, <laughs> I got to go do this thing. No, 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 no. Nope. If you see it for what it's worth, then you leave everything else, and you don't worry about those things. In the epistle today, this is one of those epistle lessons that, that kind of haunted me for a very, very long time until I understand the context for what, in which all of this is said. So, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let, let's move past the very basic things and move towards maturity. Don't keep going over and over again, what does it take to be saved? He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. He's speaking to Hebrews. And who are the Hebrews? Well, they're the Jews. Hebrews just means river crossers. It was the earliest way in which these people were designated. They were the people who crossed rivers. And so here we, that's who he's, who he's responding to, is those who would go back to the works of the law. He says, Don't, let's, let's move beyond the elementary doctrine of Christ, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Let, let's, let's move on from the understanding that you're saved by works rather than faith, he says, and of instructions about washings. And, and there are tons of instructions about washing in the Talmud. 
about how to how to wash your hands, when to wash your hands, how to wash fruit, how when to wash fruit, all these kinds of things. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. He said these things are all basic and fundamental things, but you should be moving on beyond those things, but we can't. He said, this will do, if we will do, moving on, if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and hand, holding him up to contempt. So does that mean somebody who falls back into sin is damned? Well, it it would apply to all of us if that were the case, right? I mean, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's not that we sinned in the past and now we don't anymore. That couldn't be possibly, but what this means. No, what it means is is that, that they have gone back to some other religion. They've gone back to some other way of achieving reconciliation and salvation, They've done something else. They've fallen away in the sense that, that they have denied the efficacy of the cross. And so they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They've gone back to the do-it-yourself form of religion that was the sacrificial system. Well, that's not even going to be an option in the very, very near future for these people. But, but he's saying, this is what you've done. It's impossible to restore you once you've forsaken the cross of Christ as the means of salvation. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was crucified, cultivated bec- receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So let's see some fruit, he says. Let, let's see that. If, you, if you've received all these things, then you need to begin bearing fruit. You need to turn away from the old way and turn to the new way and to receive it uh, as the way and the only way. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Even though I'm saying harsh words to you here, saying it's impossible to restore people, he says we're convinced that that's not true of you, that, that we believe you, you haven't done that. You haven't walked away and, and found another way. You've not given up on Christ for God's not unjust, unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. In other words, you haven't gone so far as to be irredeemable. <clears throat> and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what he's pointing them back to is, is to be earnest— about the full assurance of hope. So be earnest in, in, your, in your faith in the cross of Christ to be all that you need, so that you're not sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promises. So you can see and imagine in a community that, that believed that it was living in the end times, and we all have lived in the end times since the death of Christ, but the, the other side of it is, is that, that do we live in the end of the end times? And so they had apparently, and without good reason, come to believe that the end times were imminent and they would happen in their lifetime and they would see this. And so the fact that there is a delay has caused them to wonder if this is true or not. And therefore, should we maybe hedge our bets at least by participating again in the sacrificial system? 
And so the, the, this whole point is to say, no, judgment will fall on you if you do that because you have denied the cross of Christ. And so you can't do that. You're, you're going to lose it if you do that. Were you well and truly saved? Even though you participated in these things, were you well and truly saved? And it matters. It, we are called to persevere again and again and again in the epistles and in Jesus in a lot of his parables, when he says there's a delay in the return of the master, those kinds of parables that he tells like that are intended to tell us that we need to be prepared and we need to persevere in all that we do. And in the same way that, well, Ezekiel was called to radical perseverance, we too are called to that same similar kind of radical, radical obedience and radical perseverance.